Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. Also check us out. We stream online to the masses at radionorthland.org. And don't forget, we are on the TuneIn app. So there's another place where you can listen to us live, wherever, whenever, whatever. I'm Glenn Broggett along with my co-host down there deep in the heart of Texas, where uh, as of this recording... We're not all that far uh, off as far as temp differences. And this is in the middle of the day, folks, when we are recording. The grizzled vet Mike McCurdy is uh, the shivering grizzled vet Mike McCurdy. G- uh, good day to you, sir. Yeah, 44 degrees in the great state of Texas. <laughs> Yesterday was 72. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, at least it's not <laughs> snowing. 30 degree drop. No, there's no snow. Still no snow. Just cold and cloudy. Oh, see, what we've been having up here... Uh, we are having actually a, a nice almost 30 degree day, but the last couple of days we've been dealing with single digits, the, but the winds were up in, in the double digits, gusting up to 25, 30 miles per hour. So yeah, the walk into my uh, other job from the big parking lot is, uh, if I wasn't awake by the time I got to the the parking lot out of my car, but that walk has always been the great, great uh, awakener for me, and it, it gets me ready to uh go into a, a warehouse, but at least my job is, is warm. Well, there you go. Well, my normal job, I work in a bakery, so if it's cold outside, I've got a 500-degree oven inside with me, so I'm always good there, too. We're, we're protected. We're protected. So, Mike, how you been? Uh, always, of course, we uh, keep up on what's been going on in the world of wrestling. Uh, wrestling never uh, uh, at a loss for, for action. Of course, there was, what, the Survivor Series and AEW had their pay-per-view, and of course, if you want to go off the wrestling beaten path, a wrestling-related thing that's been getting some buzz and getting some uh, some uh, heat, I guess these days, is a documentary series that is on the Peacock Network, on the Peacock app, rather. I'm so old school; I still say network. Mike, you and I have watched this this documentary featuring one we Teddy have. Hart. Now, tell the folks a little bit about this, and then we'll kind of go back and forth before we get to our guest today about this. This to me was just everything I thought it would be because I've been following the guy through his various visits on podcasts through the years and around that period of time. So it was just kind of, it was like putting the puzzle pieces together here and kind of getting to a really, if you didn't think he was a a space case or just a head case before uh, this pretty much cements it. Uh, What a, what an interesting doc. Interesting is the, uh, is the, uh, I'm being nice. Interesting word to put it, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, what we're talking about, dangerous breed, crime, crime cons and cats. The, the Teddy Hart documentary that's on Peacock. Only three episodes, so it's a quick and easy. Well, I don't know about easy. Yeah, it's a no, quick way to easy get about through. That. It's only a little under three hours. But, man. I knew, I knew Teddy Hart was kind of a nut. Uh, I worked a couple shows in Vegas at Cauliflower Alley that uh, – you know, Teddy Hart was a part of, so, but I didn't realize to the extent of where he went. And also I did not realize that someone that I met when I moved out here to Texas back in 2016 actually was part of the Teddy Hart story at one point. I did not know that she had, uh, you know, she was with Teddy Hart at at a point. So that was kind of an interesting uh, thing to find out. But yeah, no, it starts off as, this guy wants to make a reality series about professional wrestler Teddy Hart, and by the end of it, it's a true crime series, and it's a where is she now type of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and then there were a few players that they brought in that uh, didn't exact were featured on this documentary that uh, haven't had the the the, the most uh, 
squeaky clean records as far as pro wrestling, just as far as criminal records go. Uh, yeah, it seemed a little awkward seeing Chase and Rance on there. Uh, he's definitely one that uh, uh, probably doesn't get uh, too much love and for good reason just from his track record. See, when I was watching that and they got to the part where the girl's doing the training in Florida and they get to that scene and he's like, my name is Jason Rance. I'm the owner of the Team Vision Dojo. And I just kind of dropped my chin to my chest. I was like, oh, God, because the story already was crazy enough. And then you add in Jason Rance knowing his uh, backstory. And, oh, God, it just made it. It just made it so much worse. But the thing is... We do recommend you watch if you're a wrestling fan, you're a curiosity seeker, you love watching those consumable true crime, you know, mini series on whether on streaming media. This will will be your jam. But you know, Mike, we're not gonna sit and talk about Teddy Hart. Uh no, no, no. We got bigger fish to fry this week. No, no, we got real big fish to fry this week, mate. And we're gonna go back to kind of our childhood with our, our guests today, uh, Mike. We are. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Me too. And, uh, you know, growing up, uh, you know, we weren't like, you know, when we were kids, we didn't have these things like, you know, the interwebs. We didn't have the dirt sheets. I wasn't, wasn't, you know, I first started watching wrestling when I was five or six. I I wasn't looking to, uh, in the mailbox for my Meltzer uh, report or even in my my later developing years. I, the one, my go-to was this a, a great series of magazines, man. When we are talking about inside wrestling, sports review wrestling, the wrestler, and of course, the big one for everybody, everybody loves too, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Mike, uh, you're only a couple years older than I, but you know the feeling of what it's like every month to get the jump and get those magazines. Boy, I spent endless hours reading these magazines and I got to know a lot about these wrestlers though, too. So I guess I consider it was an education every month and to, to figure them out. But boy, I bet you had a few dollars that were contributed to, uh, to Stanley Weston and his company for their wonderful magazines. As I said, uh, in a previous episode, I used to save up my allowance, babysitting money and all that so that I could go to the, the local liquor store. Uh, where those magazines were always at the, on the bottom shelf right there, along with some of the Napolitano magazine. I would buy my stack of magazines every month, and I would go home happy and read every one of them cover to cover. <laughs> that, so, yes. After, of course, after, of course, I bought my Hit Parader and my Metal Edge and some others, too. So I had to have my music magazine. How, so, like, you know, even when you're younger, I mean, given given the big guy that you are, the grizzled vet that you are, did they, uh, you know, you could have just slipped in a 40 and it would have been okay back then. Well, we, we, we might have, when I got a little bit older in high school, I might have... When you, when you were 12? <laughs> made, made it, yeah, 13, 14. Yeah. I might have picked up a purchase that I wasn't supposed to because, you know, I look a little bit older. For my <laughs> but, uh, no, mainly the liquor store was where I got my wrestling magazines. Oh, man. We're, and we're so just pleased as punch to have a, a great guest that you were able to track down, Mike. One of the guys who was a part of those great magazines, not just PWI. We talked about Inside Wrestling, The Wrestler Sports Review, and a few more that need to get mentioned. But why have us rattle on about these magazines? Why not get to the guy who was uh, in the nerd? He was right in the, the, the machine, man. He, he was one of those guys that was hustling and contributing. Uh, no, we, we we already had Bill Apter. Uh, this guy I've been wanting to talk to for quite a long time. Mr. Craig Peters, thank you and welcome to Wrestling Memories. Hey, Glenn and Mike, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I want to talk about Hit Parader. I used to get that one too. 
I'm a big music guy. <laughs> there there so we go. Yeah, I, I bought everything on the stands. You did you read Cream? Uh, absolutely. Oh. Boy, howdy, I did. Boy, have yeah. you seen? Have you seen like? I mean, print. They, they brought it back this year. They're doing like quarterly uh, coffee, almost like coffee table book size uh, magazines. They're doing the whole cream thing again, but they're not doing it in stores. They're doing it like via you know fan club. Like these little offers that uh, you can sign up for. But I, uh, they got a second magazine coming out. I got the first one that came out, and it's it's so true to the, the cream formula. Even when they're covering some of the present yeah, I haven't day. Seen it? That, boy, that's good to hear. That's really good to hear. Oh yeah, I mean it's so cool that that you know that there's uh, some of that nostalgia love out there. Whether it's uh, you know kids uh, collecting vinyl records, you know, to other stuff, you know, it seems like the people are having that little hunger for the past in this push button, easy swipe world. They think they want things that are more tangible. And what was uh, nothing really more tangible than having a magazine? And gosh, I can just think about, it. and I still to this day go visit, visit my brother who has every one of your damn magazines since 1979 uh, and just think about the great memories and uh, just how I kind of uh, got my idea and grasp of what was going on in the pro wrestling world outside of where I was here in northwestern Minnesota watching the AWA and I went out of a, a station out of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. So this was like those magazines were just, a, uh, I guess it, like the, not a gateway drug, but they were the gateway for me and really helped me in those days where, you know, we didn't have all the, the amenities we do uh, with social media. Yeah, it, boy, it, it, it was a great time. And I started with the Weston magazines and I, I, I call them the Weston magazines, call them the after mags, whatever you want. But, you know, the GC London family of magazines. I started in 1981. And I was there for 15 years, actually. Huh. Um, when I started, I thought it was going to be a very short-term thing. I would just yeah, I'd do that for a little while until I found something, you know, legitimate to work with. <laughs> but once I <laughs> once I got in and uh, you know started doing it, and uh, you know, the, the staff that was there was fantastic, and I just loved it. And it was a great place to be, and it was a great time to be at the magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, just watching, you know, watching the business grow and grow, and then hit that Hulk Hogan crescendo crescendo and um you know the the breaking down of kayfabe and all of that it was it was just an amazing time oh absolutely and just what a gamut of emotions though uh, i mean not only just a pro wrestling fan but you covering the business uh the way things kind of progressed as we uh you know so you came into it uh the, there was still a great there was still a, a some a good pipeline with the territories there were still some great territories was, in in yeah. the hunt yeah before mcmahon started and then by the time you ended your run this was kind of what you ended what you left pwi what in the mid 90s it was yeah 96 96 you know that was there, when i ran away and joined the circus <laughs> literally. <laughs> literally yeah we'll get to that here but yeah i mean just what uh i i wouldn't call it a drop but just how much impact the wwe machine had on uh basically taking some of these uh, areas out of the out of the equation but of course right. it also had a lot to do with some of the the, the out of the you know out of step promoters too but you kind of got to see uh i mean at least you got to see a lot of great events formulations of a lot of cool things but on the on the other side you did get to see the warts and all yeah absolutely and you know it- you were talking a few minutes ago about the Teddy Hart documentary on uh, Peacock, and I haven't seen that one yet. And I guess there, there's a bunch of stuff on Peacock I need to catch up with. But you know, I've seen—I'm um, sure you guys have seen the Tales from the Territories yes. over on Vice and Dark Side of the Ring, of course. 
And it's really interesting, you know, like back in the day in the 80s, um, you know, you really had to sort of scramble to find anything about wrestling anywhere beyond our magazines. But, you know, now there's just so much stuff everywhere. Uh-huh. And if you're a fan, it's, I mean, you can watch this stuff all day long. And there's a lot of really, really interesting stuff. I mean, the Tales from the Territories, I haven't seen all of those, but I've seen a few of them, and I'm really enjoying those. Yeah, and I'm thinking that this is something that uh, was a they, this was this was a season where they really tested the waters out just to kind of get a reaction because you have to think that this uh, I mean aside from just the initial sessions with all the edits, there's probably a lot of stuff that hit the cutting room floor, but there's also future consideration for some of the, the to, some of the revisiting of, of some of these said territories because I just have a feeling that this, this again this just seems to me like a scratch the surface get some of the curious entry level type fans that are interested while keeping the the hardcore old schoolers uh, you know their attention as well but I think it's this if they're able to do it and they're able to run with it I think more layers will come off as we learn more about these territories because again there's only been only a few of these stories and you know the depth of uh, just uh, a couple of years of pro wrestling stories, let alone decades. Well, I I hope they do. I mean, the the first one that I saw was um, uh, the Jerry Lawler, Andy Kaufman episode. And I had to go to that one, of course, because uh, my dear friend, Bill Apter, and uh, I was really happy to see Bill get a good shout out on that show because, you know, he did set that up. If it wasn't for Bill, that whole angle would not have happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was there with Bill um, in the hotel room uh, the night of, actually the, the afternoon before the David Letterman incident, you know, the infamous mm-hmm. uh, coffee throwing incident. And uh, Bill and I were actually on the stage when that happened. Bill was, photo- you know, with, I was huddled up, actually both of us were huddled up. He was at the base of one camera, I was at the base of another Bill was shooting color film. Remember film, kids, back in the day? No digital cameras. Um, but, yeah, Bill was shooting color. I was shooting black and white. Uh, the whole thing went down, and uh, once the show was over, we ran through the streets, literally ran through the streets of New York to, I believe it was the New York Post. It might have been the Daily News. It's, I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure it was the Post. Um, had allowed us to use their dark room to develop the film and uh as as sort of a uh you know a payment for allowing us to do that uh we let them use uh one of the black and white photos so i actually my photo was on the front page of the paper the next morning of <laughs> of Kaufman and Lawler's so that that was a pretty cool memory oh very cool and speaking of Bill after uh, uh when when you first started up what, what was your first impressions meeting up with Bill when you started your job and and just how much of a of of, of a help was he uh, as far as guiding you in and kind of getting you uh through the basic ropes and and then the ride you guys went on uh with the with the territories the next few years was something uh that was so special but just talk about those earlier days of when you got the job and you were starting to meet the people heck you know bill and of course the the main man stanley weston and the rest of the staff sure. yeah talk about that because i mean there was some really colorful oh, man, characters talk about that stuff for hours i mean well bill and anyone who's met bill after um all you got to do is just say bill after i mean he is he is one of the best people I, a couple of years ago he and i had lunch and i told him uh, I said, you know what, Bill? I said, you you won. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, life. I said, 
you you won. You won the game of life. <laughs> I mean, how many people? Quite. I don't want to get too deep into the seriousness here, but you know, how many people in their lives get to live their life doing something, making a living, um, being involved in something that they love so much? I mean, he was a fan as a kid. He. He grew up, he got the job working for Stanley Weston in Stanley's basement, um, you know, went on to become such an integral part of the business himself, and is still doing it to this day. I mean, very, very few people in life get that, get that privilege. So my hat's off to him. Um, in the office, Bill was, oh, man. <laughs> Bill, Bill was as funny in the office in a professional setting as he is every day in a friendly setting um you know we worked hard we played hard bill loves jerry lewis his jerry lewis impression was you know frequently heard in the office uh we were the gc london family of magazines so bill actually created a character called mr london and he had a bowler hat and a cane and every once in a while mr london would make an appearance (laughs) And Bill would walk around from desk to desk speaking in a British accent. Um, you know, Mr. Uh, London checking on the employees and seeing how things are doing and how are the magazines. Uh, it just sort of, you know, it was almost like a Jonathan Winters kind of a thing. <laughs> you know, doing, doing that uh, uh, improvisational type of performance and, and, and comedy. And boy, was he great at it. Mm-hmm. Um, professionally, the, the thing that, was, that I really treasure the most about my relationship with Bill, other than the fact that he very quickly became a dear friend and to this day is a dear friend. Um, you know, I, I got to tail Bill on, on trips around the country, um, which I know Stu went on a couple of trips with Bill, but, you know, it, I don't know that anybody else really got to do it to the degree that, that I did, and I'm extremely fortunate at that. So when wrestling really started uh, picking up a huge head of steam in the mid eighties. Um, we were doing a lot more magazines, right? So we had pro wrestling illustrated, the wrestler inside wrestling, sports review, wrestling, wrestling, superstars, wrestling USA. We had wrestling annuals, wrestling 84, wrestling 85, mm-hmm. um, wrestling bad guys magazine for a while. I mean, there were tons of, them. we were putting out, um, you know, four or five, Maybe there were some months we even did six, if you count some of the reprint magazines. So we were churning out an awful lot of product, and we needed a lot of photos to go with it. So we would do things, you know, we'd go on trips, and like I mentioned with Letterman, you know, typically Bill would shoot color, I would shoot black and white. But, you know, the first time going out on the road with Bill, you know, you walk into a dressing room, and I'm, pr- I'm pretty new to the business, right? I haven't been on the road, and... Bill's been on the road for years, and the two of us go walking in, and, you know, the, the wrestlers are sitting there, and they look up, hey, Bill, and they just kind of quiet down very quickly, and they're giving me this gunk eye, like, who's this guy? And, you know, Bill goes, oh, he, that's Craig, he's, he's with me, he's all right. Well, Bill Apter says, he's with me, he's all right, you're in, you're in with the boys. And, uh, you know, that was sort of a huge privilege, but also seeing Bill work with the wrestlers when he was posing that we had a portable studio we would bring around from city to city and uh um you know sometimes it would be backstage at the, at the arena 
we'd set up a backdrop and lights once in a while. It would be in a hotel room. We'd tear it apart, set up backdrop and lights. And, you know, the wrestler would stand on the backdrop and, and pose. And if you haven't done that sort of photography, it's hard to understand how difficult it is to get a really good photo. You know, you want to get the person who's posing in a relaxed frame of mind. You want to get them to stand this way, stand that way. And, boy, Bill was just, I learned so much watching Bill interact with the wrestlers and get them relaxed and sort of play with them. And, and his sense of humor got him to a point where they would pretty much do almost anything for Bill. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was just a, a huge, it, it was like a master's class in, uh, you know, how to, how to photograph someone in, in a way to get them to give you the photo you want to get. Mm-hmm. What I loved about Bill, though, too, was he was very, again, he had so many connections with these promoters and promotions that he would go, uh, you know, and at the time of the year-end awards, you would see a lot of Bill around, whether it be on AWA TV or in some of the territories. And, of course, uh, down in uh, Georgia, where uh, the scouting reports thing came about, uh, having having such strong relationships with these other territories, that that must have really had uh, softened the blow after things kind of fell out with the WWF back in the day. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, you know, Bill had Bill had those relationships, and um, you know, everybody wanted to be on the cover, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, so um, he, you know, I, I think the hardest part of Bill's job was probably just, you know, it's almost like the, the guy on the old Ed Sullivan show balancing all the plates on the yes. end of the sticks and keeping them spinning. That's kind of like what Bill did with all the different territories. You know, he, he somehow managed to keep everybody happy for the most part. Once in a while, I'm, you know, I'm sure he got the phone call, you know, hey, how come, how come uh, you wrote this or how come, you know, how come you had me saying that? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, by and large, 99% of the time, everybody was extremely happy with what they saw in the magazines. And, you know, Bill was, Bill was the face of the magazines to the business and, you know, the conduit to the business for the magazines. Mm-hmm. Absolutely invaluable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we talked about, you mentioned Jerry Lawler and Andy Kaufman. Um, through those relationship with Lawler, that was a really a beneficial thing for both the magazine, of course, and for, for, for Memphis, because, again, you got so many great uh, sh- stories out of uh, Jerry with various photos, some taken by a young Jim Cornette, that this was That's just right. one of those great pipelines of, uh, again, a guy like when I got, you know, started collecting magazines, I was able to kind of figure out uh, who was in the territories. And then when I finally got to see these people on TV, it kind of gave me a great reference point. So that's interesting. So what would happen when you would read the magazines and you'd see the guy in the territory, but then he'd go somewhere else and he had a different character? What was that like? That was a bit confusing, of course. But then, it's, <laughs> yeah, just a little bit, just a little that's bit. That's actually something we couldn't address in the magazines all that much, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were still holding kayfabe for the most part while I was there, so you couldn't really say, oh, you know, so-and-so got a... You know, got a new gimmick, and now he's now he's this, and he was that. You know, we sort of had to play them as two separate people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, again, take it for instance, like Portland fans and uh, and even Mid South fans. Easy Ed Wasowski becoming right. the South African uh, Colonel De Beers. I mean, Colonel De Beers. Yeah. yeah, could you imagine? Like, there was probably a lot of people like that's Easy Ed. Just yeah, cr- I guess that's kind of like the, the, the readers who really sort of paid close attention to that 
they were probably the ones that started to understand, you know, what breaking kayfabe was about, right? Mm -hmm. There was a little something else going on here than I thought there was. Yeah. But it is, you know, but then that's just the magic of wrestling. And again, having all those oh, mags. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, the, but I mean, you guys had such great writers too. I, I, I mean, you talk about yourself and uh, of course you had Stu Sachs, uh, a guy that left us uh, way too early in the early part of the 80s, who was just great at being a heel too, was was Damn. Dan Shockett, man. God, I mean, oh, yeah. it, it, could you imagine how this guy, if he would have stayed, and again, if he was alive, and if he would have stayed in the business of writing for professional wrestling, or at least one of his many projects, because you seem to be a pretty busy guy, but could you imagine some of the great things that could have uh, came out of, especially some of these big things when, when wrestling exploded on that national basis? Absolutely. You know, Dan was a super talented guy. Um, a lot of his writing was done for <clears throat> adult magazines, <clears throat> and publications, mm-hmm. uh, but um, you know he he had a he had the type of talent and the type of uh, very wide interests that um, I think you know had he lived he would have he would have broken into the mainstream and he was starting to break into the mainstream a little bit when he passed, um, but I think he would have broken into the mainstream in a big way and become. Uh, a very well-known magazine writer, newspaper columnist, something of the sort. I think of Dan, if, if anybody listening knows of uh, the writer Harlan Ellison, um, one of my favorites, but you know, I, I think there's a, a lot of commonality that Dan has with Harlan. You know, very opinionated, um, could be very acerbic, very, uh, just, but just a great writer fundamentally. Um, super interesting guy. It was so sad, uh, so sad when he left us. Mm-hmm. Now, before I hand it off to to Mike McCurdy, uh, I want to get your impression of what the the big man was like the uh, the guy, the man Stanley Weston, the overseer, the one who uh, who kind of oh. got this thing going. Because you know what, Stanley seemed like a fascinating chap. I mean, who not only loved the world of professional wrestling, but he very much had his foot in the world of professional boxing too, as far as publishing yep. goes. Talk a little bit about for and get to some of our younger fans who might not know anything about Stanley, because I think he shouldn't be forgotten as far as his contribution, I mean, they called him the Aftermags, but really, it should be the Weston. Absolutely. And, and, and thank you for asking that question, because, you know, Stanley, you know, you're exactly right. You know, they're called the Aftermags. They, they kind of are the Weston Mags. I mean, he was the man that made it all happen. Um, and there's, you know, I think one of my regrets working for that company for 15 years is that, I really didn't get to spend a whole lot of time with Stanley. You know, I'd see him now and again, and, you know, he's in the office, you know, just sort of, um, you know, just as, as boss employee type stuff. But, boy, I would have loved to have, you know, spent hours and hours with him listening to stories that he undoubtedly had about, um, you know, he, he painted many covers for the Ring Boxing Magazine. Um, you know, being in publishing, doing detective magazines and, and Western magazines and all the rest of it. I mean, publishing is a is, is kind of a bare knuckle business. I would have loved to have heard some of those stories. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about the kind of guy Stanley Weston was. And he was the kind of boss where, um, you know, he hired he hired good people and got out of their way. We made a lot of money for him. Um, he he built a five story building that we moved into at one point. He, in fact, I just drove past it the other day. In fact up in Long Island, and uh, he would say that, 
um, wrestling built the first four floors and boxing built the fifth. So <laughs> it gives you an idea of how much money he made from uh, wrestling and boxing there. Mm-hmm. But um, when I started with the magazines in 81, and I started, I believe it was like May, June, somewhere in there. You know, it was mid-year. Um, I'm working there for a couple of months. And very shortly afterwards, so this would have been like maybe September, just a couple of months after I started working there, I came down with a horrible case of mononucleosis. Um, it was so bad they were taking uh, they were taking blood from me every day. My mm-hmm. blood values were suggesting that I had leukemia. Um, I was laid up in bed for a couple of months. Um, most most people, most bosses in that situation would have said, "Hey, thanks, you know, sorry, but you know, we need to we need to get the magazines out. We're going to hire somebody else." Not Stanley. He said, you know what, you take care of yourself, get better, your job will be here when you get back, just worry about your health. Mm-hmm. And that was just amazing to me. Um, and he, he treated his employees very well. Um, there are a number of stories that I know about employees that I, I can't really tell, but I can tell you that um, he, supported, uh, he supported everyone in ways that... Um, very, very few employers then or now would ever do. There was another time, another story I like to tell about Stanley. Um, we, used to, uh, we used to get quarterly bonuses when the magazines were doing uh, pretty well. And uh, we used to get paid for unused vacation time at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. So this would have, and I, I know the, what year this happened because I, I got married in 1985, so this was the end of 1984. And uh, it was the end of the year, and payday came along, and you got your, you know, twice a month we got paid. So you got your regular paycheck, then we got our unused vacation check, then we got our year-end bonus check, and then, because this was 84, Business was doing phenomenal. We were outselling Sports Illustrated on the newsstand. They had a few more subscribers than we did, but we were, we were, we were doing great guns. We got a second bonus check, just out of the goodness of the you know, generosity of, of Stanley's heart. So can you imagine an office full of mostly you know, 20-something young guys, four paychecks in one day? You have never seen a happier staff in your life, I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, hey. I, I think that one, that one payday paid for my honeymoon the following year. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about the, the floors that uh, the wrestling and boxing built. Uh, did, was the basement for apartment wrestling? That, that, you know, that might have been, yeah. I think that, so. That, that was where all the back issues were kept, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I said, but I, that, that whole like, thing. Yeah, apartment wrestling. I, I, I bet they didn't cover up that corner of the magazines in the liquor store when you were buying them, right? <laughs> Mike, come into the conversation. Mike McCurdy, the man who used to buy his wrestling magazines at the liquor store. I bet there was maybe a few of those in the um, issues that you bought that had the apartment wrestling in them. Um, when I started buying the wrestling magazines, I was around 14, uh, mid-80s. The apartment wrestling had kind of gone its route by then. I do have some of the apartment house wrestling magazines, though, that I have since purchased online. And obviously, you know... Theo Eric, I have his book, Exquisite Mayhem, which has a lot of that old, uh, you know, apartment house wrestling stuff as well. So, 
Yeah. The little more so like, version of it, of course. I'll tell you a little thing about uh, sports review wrestling and the apartment wrestling stories. You mentioned Dan Shockett earlier. Um, most of those stories, not all of them, but probably 95% of the apartment wrestling stories were written by Dan. Um, and I think I wrote one or two. Maybe Dan was busy and had something else going on. We were on deadline. I think, you know, a couple of other people, Dave Rosenbaum, I think, wrote one or two. But by and large, they were, they were Dan Shockett creations. And if you read through the apartment wrestling stories, you will find a Dan Shockett signature in each and every one of them. And what he used to do, he would put the same phrase, but a different version of the same phrase, in each of those stories. And the phrase was, it was a blank exhibition of wrestling blank. So it might be, you know, in one story it would be, it was a furious exhibition of wrestling brutality. Next month it would be, it was an incredible exhibition of wrestling intensity. <laughs> Whatever, but it was the same phrase, and th like, like that was his little, um, that was like a little Easter egg that he put into each one of his stories. That was sort of his uh, little signature. But every, every apartment wrestling story written by Dan has that somewhere in it. I'm going to have to look for that now. I'm going to have to dig out my, my yeah. magazines and read a couple of these stories. Now I'm kind of interested. <laughs> um, one thing I'd like to ask about, now I've had a chance to, I've, I've met uh, Bill on a couple of occasions. He was out here in Texas for our Parade of Champions in 2016. Ended up hosting the Jim Cornette Experience. Uh, Jim Cornette did a live show and Bill ended up becoming host. And Bill was a great guy. And I had a chance to tell him, and I've talked to Dan Murphy as well, and I can tell you the same thing. When I was about 14, I found the magazine. I was in high school. I loved English. I loved writing. And I loved wrestling. That was my thing. I found those magazines. I flipped through them. I didn't know about the magazines. I knew about WWF, and I knew WWF had their magazine because my parents would buy me that for Christmas every year. I didn't know about your magazines until I found them at that local liquor store. And by local, I mean it was a 30-minute drive to get to the town where the liquor store was. <laughs> but I saw the pictures, I saw the articles, and that got me to realize, hey, I can take pictures and write about wrestling. I can do this. And that's what I did in high school. I would all my essays, and it were wrestling-related stories. And my teachers realized, wow, you really have an interest in this, and it's kind of burdened kind of what do I've got now. So I love those magazines. I want to thank you for everything you did with the magazines, uh, first off. It was my childhood, but it also kind of led to me what I'm doing now, where I get to be a historian. I get to study and research the history, and those magazines are part of that history. So, well, one, that's, I just want to thank you for that. Hear. Yeah, that, that, that's great to hear. Thank you. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. It's, it's, I've always found it interesting that, um, you know, Stu Sachs had a wrestling newsletter when he was a kid and, and, and went to the magazines from there. You know, Bill Apter was, you know, a wrestling fan growing up. Um, I wasn't, um, you know, I'd been to the matches a couple of times, seen it on TV, uh, a bunch of times, but you know, I was more of a comic book guy and that's, that's sort of how I was able to pick up the threads of what was going on in wrestling at the time, because, you know, I looked at it and said, Oh, these are flesh and blood comic book characters. I get this. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of us on the magazines, and this, this counts for Stu as well, and, and the other writers we had, Dave, uh, Dan, and, uh, you know, everybody else. I don't know if Matt Brock counts as this, but uh, you know, <laughs> we, all, we all came out of 
um, like we all worked on our college newspapers. You know, we, we came from English programs or journalism programs or whatever it might be. And I always sort of, sort of looked at those days as magazine professionals putting out wrestling magazines as opposed to wrestling fans putting out wrestling magazines. We were always very, I mean, an argument over the Oxford comma could break out at any time and go on for an hour. Um, we were very, very concerned about putting out, um, you know, good quality writing. Uh, you know, we were very, very, very uh, cognizant of, of, you know, our editing. Now, having said that, there's, um, there are some Twitter accounts that I follow that will post uh, pages from old magazines and, and stories or whatnot, and I go back and look at them, and I, I sort of cringe, like, oh, my goodness, did we... <laughs> That needs editing. That headline is, could be said a better way. Um, but, you know, at the time, we were, we were really, really bent over backwards to editorially put out a very solid product. Um, I know, like, like, when I started writing, I wasn't just writing stories. I was trying to emulate, um, you know, the newspaper writers and short story writers that I liked at the time. You know, bring, bring, something, you know, bring something more than just, you know, trying to fill up a couple of pages with text. Now, that brings me to my question. Um, obviously, you know, the magazines, they tied into the storylines that were going on in wrestling the territories, and that's how I found out about, you know, world-class territories and things like that. As someone who's, you know, a journalist or a serious writer, writing the stories to, co to correlate with the, you know, storylines on TV, obviously, you're kind of keeping sort What was that like? Because obviously, you know, they were scripted. Sorry, I hate to say it. Right. Um, <laughs> but what was that like? Because you're writing a serious magazine. You're, you're going to be selling this magazine on the newsstand. But the stories you're writing about are totally made up by bookers, promoters from all over the U.S. and all that. And you're basically continuing those storylines. What was it like to be able to, to create stuff like that? Well, it, it was very liberating in the sense that, you know, you didn't have to sit on the phone for hours and try and run down somebody to get a quote. So there was that. It was very efficient. <laughs> Um, in the very beginning when I started, you know, again, I started in 81, so, um, you know, late 70s into about 82 and even part of 83, it was still pretty much the Wild West in terms of the types of stories we would run. Um, you know, if you, you go back and you can read columns where, uh, you know, Ric Flair is, expressing his, his thoughts while he's taking a shower or something like that. Like, who would know that? That's, you know, obviously, on the face of it, it's just absurd. Um, I, wrote a, I wrote a column where uh, there was a, a New Jersey television personality, Uncle Floyd, Floyd Vivino, and uh, um, he had a hand puppet named Oogie. And, you know, it was like a ventriloquist type of thing going on. And I wrote a column. It was a show. Larry Zbysko was on the show a bunch of times. So I did a column where Zbysko tore up the studio. And Uncle Floyd wasn't there, but Uyu was there and giving me quotes. A hand puppet is giving me quotes. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so it was very, very out there um, when I started. Uh, as, you know, again, 83 into 84 and beyond, we had to tighten things up a little bit. You know, the, the, we didn't do the crazy stuff like that anymore. But we, you know, we still followed um, trying to be like the Sports Illustrated of wrestling, 
right? We followed very journalistic formats and uh, yeah, you know, we needed quotes for a, a story. Well, we'd just make them up. They would fall within the angles that the territories were running. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Bill would occasionally get a call. You know, what, how come I said that? You know, that's, that wasn't part of the angle. And he would smooth it over. But, you know, by and large, we knew what the angles were. And, you know, we could write within those angles something that was appropriate for the story at hand. Now, to take it sort of in a different direction, over the years, I've done a lot of writing for a lot of different things. And I've done some speech writing. And I've done press release writing. And, you know, anyone who's done that knows that typically the way a press release quote is, is written is that the person writing the press release will just write the quote and then the release, you know, the CEO says blah, 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 blah. And then the, the draft of the release is brought to the CEO for him to read, him or her to read the quote and approve it before it goes out. So it's, it's, it's a creation process that is not unique to wrestling magazines. Um, years later, when I, after I ran away and joined the circus, my, my job after working for Weston's magazines was I spent almost 10 years with Feld Entertainment, owners of Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey, producers of Disney on Ice, Siegfried and Roy in Las Vegas, Monster Trucks, a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, they were doing a stage show of Goosebumps, you know, the horror books for kids. And R.L. Stein wrote, I don't know, a couple of hundred of those things. Was, I mean, he was, he, he's like, I think I own most of them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he wrote, uh, hugely popular. And so, um, we were doing this stage show for Goosebumps and, uh, I had opportunity to have lunch with R.L. Stein, sit right next to him. And we got to talking and, um, how he started out writing, how I started out and I'm telling him about the wrestling magazines. Well, he started his career almost exactly the same way, except he did it with the Hollywood movie magazines. Um, and they were created in exactly the same way we did the wrestling magazines. So, you know, all those, all those quotes of the movie stars that you would see in the old Hollywood magazines and the movie magazines, same deal, same deal as PWI. Um, one of the magazines, I, it's one of my favorite covers. I actually have a mint condition copy of it. Is the uh, the the cover that has the photo of Kamala with Hogan's head on the spear, and it's a classic image. It's a classic cover. Looking back at some <laughs> of the work you've done in the magazines, what were some of the the, the highlights for you? The ones that stand out the most? Because I love the Kamala, the the Kamala you know, image. That was absolutely one of them, and. I, I'm the first one to admit that my memory can get hazy at times, um, but I will fight Stu Sachs and Bill Apter to the end on this one. Uh, that was my idea. <laughs> Hulk Hogan's head on a spike. And my hat's off to Ken Morgan, our art director, who managed to pull it together and make it look so great. But, oh, man, that was, that, that was one of my highlights. Another one absolutely was... Um, the year-end issue of PWI, I think it was 83. The, I, I call it the Road Warriors horror cover. I think it, was, it might have been 84, the year-end issue for 84. But, um, you know, it was, you know, the old gimmick where, like, you would take a flashlight at night and, and shine it up from under your chin on Halloween to make yourself look scary. 
Well, we were in the studio with uh, the Warriors, you know, our portable studio that I mentioned earlier, and Bill was, was taking pictures. And uh, I got the idea, and I said, Bill, let's try this. And so I grabbed one of the lights from the portable studio. I laid down on the floor and held the light up from the ground, just like you would with a flashlight on a Halloween. And Bill took the photos, and that was the Road Warrior sort of horror lighting cover. And I just love that because, like, that's who those guys were. It just expressed their uh, in-ring personalities fantastically. Um, boy, from a photography perspective, uh, Snooka Backland. Boy, I wish I had royalties on that photo that I took. Snooka on top of the cage. I was, I was shooting from the stands, and I was just, I mean, I basically had like a 25% a, a shot at being on the right side of the arena for, you know, Snuka taking the jump off the cage. So when he, when he got, up to the, uh, got up to the top, he was facing me. And, oh, man, that was, that was just the right place at the right time. And that's probably one of the most published photos in the Western magazines of all um, was the Snuka backland. Uh, boy, other stuff. I mean, you're in Texas, Mike, so, um, you know, the, the, the original Parade of Champions when Kerry took the belt. Holy mackerel. That was a phenomenal day. It was probably about 110 degrees at ringside, but the emotion in the air and, uh, I mean, everybody on the card brought their A game. It was, it was just something to be experienced. And, uh, you know, seeing people in the front rows literally crying as Kerry was holding up the belt. It was, it was, it was, you can't even describe it. It was, it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal moment. Yeah. I'm actually a California transplant. I moved out to Texas in uh, 2016, but, uh, through the magazines and a lot of your guys' work, that's where I kind of found mine. Well, ESPN as well was my love for world-class, which is kind of my focal point as far as, you know, historical work goes. I love the territory and yeah, I know that photo and I have a lot of the world-class magazine or covers with, you know, David, when he passed and things like that, and they're a big part of my collection. We talked about Bill after a while. I'm going to ask one last question before I pass the mic back to Glenn. And, you know, we've sure. talked about Bill after a lot. Um, you look at the wrestling newsletters, you know, Observer, the Torch, and people refer to them as dirt sheets. And I know that, you know, I've talked with Dave Meltzer before. He's, eh, they're not a fan of calling them dirt sheets because they felt they were just as, you know, they were a newsletter and they were providing the same information as a lot of the magazines were. Absolutely. You were... You work for a series of magazines, and everybody called them the aftermags. As the staff, and you're doing all the writing, and you're doing photography, and all that, but everybody's going, oh, it's the aftermag. Like, it's focusing all the attention on Bill After. Did you ever look at that as kind of a, well, no, they're the, the London publications. Did it kind of irk you every once in a while when someone would go, oh, the after magazines? Nah, you know, it, it really didn't. Um, you know, I, I, the, way, the way I, and, you know, I wrote an awful lot of stories, and, and, Bill After's byline was on them. <laughs> so, the, you know, it's sort of another dimension of that. Uh, but now it was fine. You know, listen, Bill was, Bill was the face of the magazines, um, and, and I, nobody got irked by that at all. You know, it was, it was uh, I guess, maybe it was a perk of the job, if you want to call it. But, you know, he earned it. I think Stanley was, uh, Stanley was happy to not have it called the Weston Magazines. You know, he was more of a... Uh, be in the background kind of guy. Um, but, you know, Bill was out there and, uh, yeah, he was doing the TV. He was doing the, 
you know, he, he was doing all the, the, the difficult legwork, you know, acting on behalf of the magazines uh, with the business. And, uh, yeah, no, it, was, it was never an issue. Absolutely never an issue. All right, before I hand it to Glenn, one quick story about when I met Bill. As I said, he came out here for the Parade of Champions in uh, 2016 uh, when WrestleMania was out here uh, in Dallas, and I got to meet him. Two weeks later, I saw him at Cauliflower Alley Club, and we had just arrived at the hotel, and we're going through the casino, we're going to go get some breakfast, and I see Bill walking through, and he looks at me, and he goes, oh, finally, somebody I recognize, and he comes over and gives me a hug like he'd known me for years, (laughs) even though he had just met me two weeks ago. And he's yep. chatting me up, telling me he's going to look for some chocolate because where he's, you know, New York, it's lunchtime. So he's going to get some chocolate. But he acted like he'd known me forever, and he'd only met me two weeks prior. <laughs> yep, that's pure Bill. You know, another thing, too, like if he was walking through, say, the, um, the dining room, and he saw you sitting there having something, like he's just as likely to do that as he would be to come running over and start yelling at you and going, you're the guy that owes me 20 bucks and you never pay me back. You know, <laughs> start doing some sort of <laughs> shtick right there on the spot. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we had a couple of routines that we used to do all the time, whether it was like on the road or just going to lunch, um, from work. Uh, yeah, he, he loves that stuff. And it's, just, it's one of the things that just makes Bill Bill and just a great person to be around. All right, Glenn, I'm passing the microphone back over to you. All right, down the stretch we go on this edition of Wrestling Memories with Craig Peters. Uh, Craig, we talked a little bit about the newsletters, the dirt sheets, whatever they want to call them. PWI did something to an extent of a, of a newsletter uh, for, for a, a brief period of time back in the late 80s, and I was a, a subscriber along with a friend yeah. of mine. Talk about what finally got you guys into try, at least putting your toe in the water of, of a weekly weekly circulated uh, newsletter. Oh, I hated that thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pain in the neck to put together, I'll tell you what. Um, you know, that was, that was less about trying to compete with, um, you know, with, with, with uh, Observer or Torch or any of those. And it was more about trying to address the issue that with monthly magazines, um, you know, by the time you, you send the magazine off to the printer and the time it actually shows up on the newsstand, you've got about six weeks, six, seven weeks, somewhere in there. So an awful lot can happen in, in the world of wrestling oh, of in course. six or seven weeks. So we were trying to address that. Um, it was really about, you know, how can we, how can we do something that's, you know, that's more immediate? Um, you know, how can we cover news now instead of you know hey here's the breaking news from two months ago what be like like they got back like in the back of the uh, back of the pwi where he had like a newspaper headline type story tease yeah yeah, the, yeah what was that wrestling inquirer i think it was yeah 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 and, uh, and and yeah and that was literally the last two pages that we would put together for the magazine so anything um anything that happened close to deadline would wind up in there mm-hmm. but you know even at that you know, you're you're buying the magazine, and you open it up, and there's this thing that happened, you know, seven weeks ago. So, we were trying to do something—a weekly newsletter um, that would give more immediate information. But I'll tell you, my memory of it is it was just a real pain in the neck to put together. We had a lot of arena reports, results. Um, you know, sometimes it was hard to find the lead story. It was hard to find enough results to fill it. 
it was a lot of work. Oh, gosh. Um, it was only, boy, I'm trying to think back. Was it six pages, eight pages maybe, something like that? I don't think yeah, because you opened it up and then you folded it out. Right. Yeah. Right. So that would be about and, yeah, four yeah, to eight pages. Like yeah, and, something like that. But oh, it was a pain in the neck to put together. <laughs> but you know, the, when you say open it up and fold it out, that reminded me of something else that we did for a while, which were the uh, the poster magazines. Oh yes, yes, yes. Pretty cool. I don't know. That's that's sort of one of those one of those publications that I tend to forget about. Like we did wrestling bad guys mm-hmm. for a little while, which was. Um, you know, where, where PWI was championing the good guys and, you know, Dan Schocker or Eddie Elner was, uh, you know, the exception, we flipped it around. So the whole magazine sort of took the Eddie Elner perspective. And I think we had a good guy columnist in there defending uh, whoever needed to be defended. But, yeah, we also had the, um, I guess it would have been a 16-page publication where you would fold the thing out and you would have this giant wall poster of, whoever it was. Now, bigger pain, PWI Weekly or PWI 500? Oh, 500 by far. <laughs> Let's and talk a little bit goodness, about that. Thank goodness I didn't have to put that together. You, you get Bob Smith on uh, on this show, he'll tell you stories about the 500. <laughs> oh. I've heard him talking with John Arezzi about that, uh, some stories <laughs> on their program, and my, it, it's almost like he should have been given some sort of journalistic uh, purple heart or something. Yeah, no kidding. That was that was a heavy lift. Mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. a heavy lift. He did a fantastic job at it. Yeah, and the fact that it's still, you know, long after he had, had left uh, the business, the, the fact that it's still going through the years, I mean, in recent years, Dan Murphy had taken on the task. Uh, now I'm not sure what, what the consortium, uh, what group of guys does it now, but that's a, that's a hell of an undertaking, and... Uh, Boy, it, it's just amazing uh, when they, they they come up with these issues every year. I, I was always amazed, but I always look forward to seeing number 500 for whatever. That pro wrestling's version of Mr. Irrelevant, like in the NFL draft. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, Greg Peters. Well, I, I always loved working on the year-end issues, too. That was one of my favorite things. Oh, they were, I mean... You guys had so many great ones, like your hundredth issue one was really, really cool yeah. too. I mean, there was uh, a lot of. I remember the. Uh, it was a few years back, it was the end of the eighties, where you guys like went all out, like you you opened up the prize closet and you had all of these different things that you were giving away. Whether oh, it was yeah, the rest, yeah, we yep, we, we we did a whole. Oh man, we we uh, we gave away Dusty's boots. We gave away a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, we had some pretty cool contests going on for a while. That Luthez belt, though, I was like, that was like, I saw that even as a kid. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. It was like a Mexican championship, some sort of championship that he gave to you guys. And I thought that was like, wow. I thought that one of you guys would have been able to put that in your trophy case before giving it to the Gen Pub. Again, that that hats hats off to Bill. He would, you know, he would call around and say, hey, we're doing this thing. You got any anything you can contribute to it? And uh, yeah. And when that, that's, you know, again, before we go, that was another thing, seeing, I guess it was like a team pitcher or the attendee pitcher, uh, seeing it in Pro Wrestling Illustrated was the first time I was from, got familiarized with the Cauliflower Alley Club. I mean, yeah, just, I know Bill, yeah, Bill was plugged into that with Lou and, and Dory. I know Dory was a very, very close friend with, uh, with Bill and, you know, Dory and do both funks and, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
You know, we could have you on here for hours and hours. We're going to have to like uh, maybe book a return engagement. We'll focus on a few uh, few topics because there's so much that we can get into that, uh, you know, we have to have a focus because if we just did this all the time, we'd be going for days. But thank you, Craig Peters. Uh, what are you up to these days? Uh, just before we go, I mean, I got to see, I mean, we talk so much about your past, but what's going on with you these days? Well, uh, these days I work for a, uh, a major financial institution um, working on their artificial intelligence uh, customer assistant that is part of their mobile app. Wow. So still in writing. I'm writing micro copy, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very direct straight line from, you know, <laughs> pro wrestling to circus uh, to banking. Yeah. And then AI thrown in there too, on top of it. So I mean, AI, yeah, but it's 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 fascinating work, and I really enjoy it. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's it's sort of a long story that I will not bore you with of how I got here. But uh, I've been doing it for um, well, the AI stuff I've been doing for about two years, and I've I've been with the uh, the bank for a little over ten years. Wow, and, uh, it's been pretty good. There's a good loyal employee right there, Mr. Craig Peters, man. If he's not writing, he's working, he's doing it. He's keeping himself above water in these trying times. I'm so busy. And, and, if, and if I may, I, I know you mentioned uh, Hit Parader earlier. I'm also a music guy, so if I could throw a little plug in here for Rock and Roll Globe. Yes, Rockandrollglobe.com. Um, great music website, and um, I've written a bunch of articles for them. Uh, reviewed Bruce Springsteen's latest album. Um, done some retrospectives on uh, Prince's 1999, um, oh, reviewed wow. Bob Dylan's new book. So uh, sort of keeping my keeping my uh, writing chops going over there. So, I like it. I like it. What was that, that site again? Saunter on over and post a few comments, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> that website again? Rockandrollglobe.com. Perfect. Now we're gonna have to. Ha- I'm gonna have to have you on just to talk about uh, rock and roll because I had a project I recently did where I read five books and read five different from five different authors from five different areas within the music industry. So we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to uh, put that out. Well, and we can do that. And is that you know one of my uh, one of my uh, closest buddies um, who also got his start in journalism from reading Bill Apter and reading wrestling magazines has actually written a series of, of books about 1970s music um, called The Vinyl Dialogues. And it's really the stories behind the songs and the albums. You know, he interviews the artists and... Uh, Gets a lowdown. They're, they're great. His name is Mike Morsch. And once again, it's The Vinyl Dialogue. So thank you for letting me uh, give that a plug as well. Absolutely. Well... Hey, I could talk music all day long, especially, uh, you know, 70s and... Oh, early 80s was, oh God. Was, was my time. God, God. You know, being in college radio in the late 70s was, <laughs> oh, oh, it was fantastic. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah. We're, let's book uh, two separate interviews, I think. Oh, man. I interviewed Stevie Ray Vaughan back in the day. I wish I knew something about the blues when I when I did that. I oh, I have a friend. I have a friend that would just be. Oh man, he would be be going berserk. Well, for Craig Peters and the Grizzle Vet Mike McCurdy, I'm Glenn Broggett. This has been Wrestling and some Music Memories.